telling stories from the EGA Clubhouse. All right, everybody. Hello, this is Chris Fetner with the EGA, and we're telling stories at the EGA Clubhouse. Today, we are very, very lucky to have a renowned specialist in his field, uh, Andy Monroe, who is an acoustical consultant and designer and engineer. Welcome, Andy. Thank you. Very pleased to join you. So, so uh, I think a good starting point, Andy, is to is to say, well, what is what are acoustics, and what what uh, what does an acoustical designer do typically, and a, a consultant do? Okay, in the in the context of this conversation, it's all about sound and how we hear it. Basically, sound moves through air, but it also moves through substances and through walls, as everybody knows. Um, so it's including a lot of mechanical. Uh, architectural and structural issues as well. And that's very much a part of the design of studios, auditoriums, concert halls, theatres, and so on. So acoustics can't exist on its own. It has to have a a medium, uh, which is air, but it also normally is contained in some way, either by buildings or or by distance, actually. Sound travels obeying certain laws, which loosely called are the inverse square law. So the sound level basically drops every time you double the distance from something. And that's very important to consider in a building because it means unless you design your theatres correctly, the people at the back won't hear, the people at the front will maybe hear it too loud, as happens sometimes in cinemas. If you go to a rock concert and you're 100 metres away from a stage, you need about a quarter of a million watts of sound to make it sound like rock and roll. So there's a lot of physical factors involved in acoustics. And, um, and that's why I love it, basically. It's a great science to be involved in. And so, so tell me a little bit about, um, you, you talked a little bit about acoustical design and sort of, but, you know, my understanding is it, it really is the, it's kind of an art and a science a little bit. And it, uh, I guess you would argue maybe more science, but, um, but it is that acoustical design is really the discipline around creating spaces that then can be used in some acoustical manner is that is that yeah, sort of the yeah, right there's way lots to talk of dis- about? there's there's lots of descriptive phases to do with acoustics which we're all familiar with like for example if you're a musician you're familiar with timbre or the acoustic of a building you can hear it and, and acoustics is all about what we can hear basically certainly in my field um, and if you can hear it you can analyze it you can understand that it. if it's speech you need intelligibility as it's called which is measured in many different ways if you can't understand something, that can actually be a danger to life. So intelligibility is very important. Um, obviously, in, a, in an entertainment sense, in our medium, in film and television, if you can't understand what someone's saying, then they're either a very bad actor or there's a technical problem with the acoustic. And the acoustic can be the microphone to loudspeaker to audience change. So there's a lot of things involved in that. And that's why you have to look at acoustics as a system, basically, I, I'm, I'm coming from a mechanical engineering background with some physics as well. So I, I resolve all of my problems basically as a system. There's an input and there's an output. The output is what you hear and the input is what you generate in the way of sound. And that could be anything from a violin to a voice to, um, to something fairly abstract, actually, or percussive. So it covers a very wide range. So tell me uh, about how you got interested in this. What is your background? You, you mentioned it a little bit about having a mechanical engineering background, but what, yeah. at what, po- what point in your life did you decide you wanted to be involved in this? And <laughs> what, was the, what was the journey yeah, this like? Is, well, it was a, this is a weird one. It's not what I recommend to students. Um, I, I was studying mechanical engineering in London at university. And 
partly to pay my fees and partly out of interest, I was actually working in a hi-fi store in the middle of London. And one day a, a rep came in from Shaw, Shaw Electronics, um, or Shaw Brothers, as you know them in the States. And they were pretty big in the hi-fi world. This is back in the early 70s. And I got chatting to this guy and he said, well, we're looking for someone like you who knows hi-fi, but is also knowledgeable about engineering and so on. So I went for an interview and they offered me a job there and then. So I had to drop out of university, go for an interview. I got through that. And then the next thing I knew, I was in Chicago going for an indoctrination at the Shaw factory up in Evanston in Illinois. Um, and I spent five years working for Shaw and I had a wonderful time. And um, they were also big on the mic microphone side, which is how I got involved in the acoustic side of it. And I did some training with Shaw and I did a a course with an outfit called Synodcon, Synergetic Audio Concepts. I don't know if you know of them. They're, they're very big in the professional audio sound reinforcement world, hence the uh, connection with Shaw. Shaw was sponsoring them. Um, and the guy that ran that was a guy called Don Davis, who was an expert in acoustics and sound system engineering. And I spent several weeks working through him and working um, with Shaw down in uh, New Orleans, Opryland, Disneyland in Anaheim, um, all kinds of situations, the downbeat jazz concerts in Chicago. Um, and then I came back to Europe and started hanging out at the, in the Shore office. And I was on a daily basis, I was meeting the roadies and the crews from bands like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones, the Who, all of these guys. And we all knew each other, we became friends. And I just got more and more involved in the acoustic side because a lot of bands had a lot of problems with acoustics, as you can imagine, because they were playing bigger and bigger auditoriums or not auditoriums, sports stadiums and exhibition centres, you name it. A big, big problem acoustically. And I just got more and more interested in that field. And, uh, and then I started my own company in 1980 um, on a wing and a prayer. But because I knew so many bands, you know, I, my first job was for Dave Gilmore of the Pink Floyd um, talk, and that was a baptism of fire. I, it, it wasn't my finest hour, I have to say. It wasn't the best studio I've ever designed. But it was a start, and I, I just got deeply into it very, very quickly, thrown in at the deep end, and I had to learn really fast about what makes studios work. And it all came out of that, really. That's how it all started. And, and so tell me a little bit about what are you, what's your practice today, typically? What are your types of clients and what, you know, uh, what types of projects do you typically work on? Okay, it could be almost anything. I've, I've worked my way through theatres, opera houses, um, auditoriums for all kinds of purposes, not just music and uh, entertainment. Um, I did a huge job for the BBC. That was a four-year project to move all of their studios to a new centre in the middle of London called New Broadcasting House. We designed 30 of the studios there, and we had to do a lot of modelling because they wanted the studios to be an open plan um, in the sense that everybody could see everybody. These are new studios with journalists and new hot news stories, things happening by the moment. Uh, so they wanted the studios made out of glass, completely made out of glass and obviously that was an acoustic challenge so we found a way of doing it all the walls were made of glass but all the acoustic treatment was actually hanging inside the studio like curtains and special bass absorbers and so on um all the ceiling basically so 360 degree of the newsroom and they had something like a thousand people on one floor and they could all see each other in theory um with 30 studios Actually, that, the studios were over five different floors, but it was a big project. 
and uh, something I'm yeah. quite proud of. Actually, we got an award for that. Um, but I suppose the biggest, the, the most famous studio in the world, really, and on this side of the pond anyway, is Abbey Road Studios, the old Beatles studio, and George Martin and so on. They wanted to build a new film mixing theatre. And I'd been working on film mixing theatres at Pinewood Studios, where they do the Bond movies, and Shepperton, where they um, Ridley Scott used to be the, the head honcho. Um, Abbey Road had never done a film room before. They obviously are famous for their music studios, but um, they wanted to do a film room and they wanted to build it in the only place they could, which was the garden of the studios. Uh, Abbey Road had a huge garden um, and they decided to build it from there, from the ground upwards. And I was involved in that. And that was uh, to have Abbey Road on your CV is about as good as you can get really in our business. Uh, I was very proud of that. And I previously I'd worked with George Martin as well. When he moved from Abbey Road Studios after the Beatles era, he built his own studios called Air Studios in London. And I was very involved in that, very, very famous studios. And, and then because of all of this, I was kind of getting jobs all around the world. I've built studios in Japan, the States. I've worked for Universal in LA, uh, but Disney in LA, I've done a lot of work for them, either in Burbank or indirectly in other places. And out of that really came an association with SDI who were specialising field dubbing, foreign language dubbing primarily. And through that, IUNA. And then um, I met, or I spoke on the internet anyway, with David Lee, the um, head boss, um, CEO of, of IUNA. And we just, we just came to an agreement that they needed some help. They needed to unify their approach to studios and they need to get some systematic scientific approaches to some of their R&D work. And, and I just ticked all the boxes, basically, you know, quite rightly. Um, I thought I was the right man for the job and I talked him into employing me. So here I am. Yeah. Uh, yeah so talk a little bit about that. Well. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that relationship. What, um, you know, what does it look like? What are your, what are you, what's your main focus going to be um, in, in the role that you have uh, with IUNA? Okay. It's, it's kind of following on from the SDI relationship because I've worked in maybe 10 different countries with SDI and I've had some involvement through Munro Acoustics, my old company, which, um, which I sold to my colleagues because I wanted to retire, <laughs> which didn't quite happen. Um, we had an office in India and through that we did some work indirectly through SDI um, facilities in Asia and also um, with uh, some of the IUNO ones. So I, I knew most of the guys involved and I, I just knew from my own experience really of, of the company that they needed, they needed a degree of homogenization really of the studio designs and the acoustics so that the same voices come out of the studios no matter where they're recorded. And, and the actors basically all have the same platform to work from. And that's not just the acoustic as well. It's the microphones, the approach, the technique. There's a certain amount of uh, technique that the best actors use, and they do great work. They really do. And there are some that are quite frankly not quite up to it. So, uh, But if the studios are all the same, or at least of a certain standard, then at least the actors know that what comes out is is down to them. You know, it's up to the actors to match the voices that they're supposed to replicate. And that's no easy task, as you can imagine. Well, you know yourself. It's not easy to say in a German accent. That's a quite being Austrian. But, um, you know, it's not easy matching languages and it's not easy matching intonation and the uh, 
what in music they call timbre. I suppose there's a similar equivalent in, in the spoken word. I'm not quite sure what it is, actually. I'm not sure there's actually an, even a name for it. Um, but it's a challenge, and I like challenges. That's, uh, I was in semi-retirement, and I didn't really reckon on doing this at all. Um, I think I've just lost video, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I actually turned, I, I turned your video off because we're having some internet problems. So oh, I'm right, going okay. to turn mine off as well, uh, okay. and then we can just... We know what each other looks like now, and so we'll yeah, sure, uh, sure. Okay. Um, so so let me ask you, let me ask you this, Andy. Do you um, it, it is your main role to be building and and unifying? Uh, I don't want to say unifying, maybe standardizing. You know the SDI Iuno fleet, if you will. Is that is that your main focus, or or are you also yes. going to be working on IDub? Um, I, I dub as a side project. Um, I was introduced to it and I found, I was in Paris working for IUNO um, a couple of weeks ago and I came across the iDub for the first time. I'd seen the specs for it and I was a little bit suspicious of um, what could be done with it. And I still have some reservations really about the product as it stands at the moment, but there's certainly a future for it. And it's quite normal in France and Germany to use that kind of tent as, if, as they call it they literally call it a tent in germany um to basically give you a, a sort of a an internal acoustic within a room so you can be in a room that's got a certain reverberation and then put up your tent and then you can have a sort of a mini dry room inside your studio or wherever you want to put it up um, but sound isolation is an issue and you can only use that kind of approach if you've got a quiet studio to start with so the, uh, the future iDub basically will have better sound insulation and, and better acoustic performance, but it won't, be, it won't be as it is at the moment. What it does at the moment, it does, and it does the job as well as a tent can do, but you have another approach to this that needs me to work doing on it. Um, but my main approach really is, is a, I'm looking at this thing as an as a, as a overall global image of how the sound should be. I mean, there's either good sound or bad sound, and how you get a good sound isn't really... Um, well, that's the be all and end all of it. How you get there isn't really the issue. It's what you get at the end of the day. Is it a good sound? And is it acceptable to the um, the client? You know, if you've got yeah. someone like Disney who are very very fussy, then you have to you have to have an approach that satisfies them. Otherwise, they'll reject your recording and everybody loses money. So, you know, it's quite a big issue and it needs to be addressed very carefully. But very, very systematically, and that's where I come in, really. I, I know, I've been designing studios for 30 or 40 years, and I've designed more than 500 you know, professional studios. So I know what I'm talking about, and, and I can impart that to all the guys in the company. Let me ask you, this is kind of a, a little bit off topic, but I'm always fascinated by it because I, in, in my previous job, I used to go around to dubbing studios all over the world, and I would always see the the U87 microphone, you know, and it almost have like a, a ray of light around it. You know, everybody wanted to show you their Neumann microphone. Uh, <laughs> how important, how important is microphone selection? Um, and is it, is it, uh, how important is it? And, and also the type of microphone, because it, it always um, struck me as, as interesting that a lot of dubbing studios aren't using the same microphones that are typically used in, in the, in the field to record audio. So talk a little bit about microphone selection or just your thoughts around it. Um, okay. Well, 
you've kind of hit the nail on the head. The mic, the microphone that's used in the production stage of a movie or um, a TV program, say, isn't necessarily the one that you would choose to use in a small booth or a, a or an ADR studio. Um, so there's a bit of a dilemma there because if if the sound recordist on set uses a shotgun microphone that has a certain character, and and in a bigger dubbing theatre you can use a shotgun microphone and just back off the talent, the artist, the actor, and and then get a similar kind of sound. But it isn't necessarily the ideal sound, but it's a it's a, it's contemporaneous with the original sound. So again, it's it's all about what. It's like what I said, it's the end result that matters. How you get there is irrelevant in a sense. And a U87 is a great microphone and it would certainly be my choice in a music studio, but it isn't necessarily my choice in a dubbing studio, although it does give a very warm sound and it's a very clean, very very low distortion microphone, big diaphragm. And I like that, but it isn't always the most appropriate microphone to use in a, in a dubbing session. That depends on the sound that you're trying to achieve. And so, so these types of decisions around microphones and, and sort of a run book, is that part of your remit? Will that be part of what you, uh, will that no, be part of isn't. your thought? Will no, that- it isn't. This is, um, this is the crossover between acoustics and artistry, if you like. Uh, I've got pretty good ears and I can judge things, but I can't judge things in a foreign language when you're trying to do a dubbing session. It's, it's way beyond my pay grade. I think they're geniuses the way they do it. Um, no, I'm, I stick to the technical side of the acoustic uh, requirements, say, and if there's a certain situation that where I think you could uh, solve the problem with a hypercardioid or or in some cases where you're trying to get a certain kind of sound, I might even sort of go back to a trusty SM58 Shure, you know, and say, well, try that. And, and I've been in many a studio situation in, in music production where microphones have made a big difference, where something isn't working and you just throw an SM57 or something in front of a guitar, tar, guitar cabinet and it solves your problem because it's just got a tight cardioid response. Um, same with feedback in live situations. That doesn't really apply to dubbing, but um, it's, it's what you hear. Yeah. You know, you have to trust your ears. And, and, and to trust your ears, you have to have good monitoring and good control rooms. That's the other aspect of this. It's not just the studio. If your monitoring is telling you something that isn't true, like you've got too much bottom end or like the good old NS10s with a little bit of a punchy mid-range, it was great for getting a, a tight sound, but not necessarily what you're going to hear if you send it down the line to someone who's using very high quality, say, Bowers and Wilkins hi-fi speaker. So you've got to look at the whole chain, start to finish. And then remember, this often is going out streaming now into people's hi-fis at home, some of which, you know, they've got multi, you know, 30 or $40,000 speaker systems. Whereas in the cinema, quite often you're using a creaky old JBL with a horn that was designed 50 years ago that, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have in my studios, but, you know, there's still a lot of them around, thousands of them. Nothing against JBL, it's just a very old design and it does what it does. And they've got new ones now, which are much better. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about just basic fundamentals of acoustic design. Like, you know, what are the what are the kind of basic must-haves? And I'm gonna I, I'm gonna throw some things out, and then just sort of if you could elaborate on it, you know. So, you know, I think conceptually, uh, isolation, you know, sort of room within a room, conceptual or floating slab, things like that. What are just the basics that that really are kind of the minimum requirements to to achieve a good result in terms of design? 
Yeah, okay. Well, I would put that down to one simple um, noise requirement, basically. Now, um, this this is a bit of a dilemma because in, in the USA, noise is rated slightly differently to Europe or the SI units. But the SI unit, the universally accepted one worldwide, really, is the noise rating, NR numbers. Now, an NR curve is a sound spectrum that takes into account the hearing sensitivity of the ear. And the number I would put on that for a dubbing theatre is, is around about NR20, which is 20 decibels. Um, but that isn't just a single number of the single frequency. It defines a whole spectrum. And if you look at the tables, you'll see that at low frequencies, very low frequencies, NR20 is actually about 60 decibels. So, you know, when you get down to 30 or 40 hertz, which is where traffic noise becomes a problem, you know, you, you, you have to isolate to, to the effect of, you know, a truck that's outside your studio generating maybe 100 decibels needs to get that down to about 50 or 60 maybe in a studio. And that's only 40 dB maybe to get, but to get 40 dB at low frequencies is actually quite difficult. And you use a double wall construction to achieve that. Now you can filter the noise out and a lot of people do, but it's a lot better if it's not there in the first place. So there's a lot to be said for traditional studio design, but in context, you can't always do that. And you have to make um, allowances. You have to use uh, high pass filters, for example, or gating. I hate gating on voices. You, it's not natural, um, but there are techniques you can use to mitigate uh, if you haven't got a noise floor, which is low enough. Um, what's more interesting in a way is the internal acoustic, the reverberation time, because for dubbing, that has to be very, very short indeed, much shorter than a typical broadcasting studio. And we're looking at reverb times now, reverberation times of something around about 0.15 of a second or even less than that um, to get a completely dry sound so that the uh, remixers can actually play with that and make it the way they want it. But if, you, if, they, if the uh, ADR studio supplies a sound that's inherently coloured, should we say, got some reverberation, it's very hard to get rid of it. So it's better to have none at all. And that allows the remixers to do their work. And so, how do you how do you play with that number? How do you how do you achieve that? Is that is that a combination of wall treatments and yeah, floor yeah. treatments? That's yeah. that's where I come in, really, because I know exactly to the decibel how much isolation you can get from a gyp rock wall or a brick wall or a stone wall, whatever. I've, I've got a database of thousands of materials, and I know exactly how to put them together. So. You know that that's that's what I'm that's my job basically to make sure that in a, in a given situation, the studio doesn't cost too much or too little or it's under spec, over spec. You know to to double the um, the sound isolation, which is only six decibels at, at sound pressure level, six dB is a doubling. That could cost you almost double the cost of the studio. So you have to be very careful about how you're approaching the design. Mm -hmm. And and how do you think about things like? you know, new products like studio brick or even whisper rooms and things like that. Is that, is that, uh, I imagine to some extent that's as a sound or an acoustical engineer, you'd probably say those are not that precise, but not, not, do you have any? On the contrary, general? actually, some of them are very good and some of them are almost verging on hype. And I don't want to mention any brand names because sure. that would be a little bit unfair, but yeah. uh, there are some good ones and there are some really bad ones. Some are a little better than garden sheds, to be honest. Um, right. Some of them are very professional and very good indeed. Um, and they tend to be the more expensive ones. So you more or less get what you pay for when it comes to that sort of thing. 
but certainly it's, it's a good way to go if you just need a small room for one or two people it's it's certainly viable As okay they get bigger, and so that's it's it's part of it you would say that the good ones are maybe part of your palette uh as an acoustical designer they're they sometimes find their way in your designs or not? Oh, not usual. yeah, very, very much so. I've worked for the BBC on such projects for radio stations, and we've designed um, small broadcast studios of about five or six square metres, something like that. Um, uh-huh. And acoustically, they're, they're very good. Um, so it, there's, not, there's, no, there's no intrinsic reason why a small booth can't be perfectly acceptable from a sound isolation and acoustic point of view. It can be done. But you have to you have to be prepared to pay more than the going rate per square meter. They cost more than conventional building, so you have to have a good reason for doing it. That's like expediency or portability or temporary. You know, if you're building a studio in an office building and you have to take it away with you when you leave because of the lease uh, commitments, right. then then That's that kind of approach is pretty good. I would say, yeah. Let's let's switch gears a little bit. I mean, you talked a little bit about reverb being very important. Um, in terms of uh, acoustical design for dubbing, just in general for ADR type recording, how important is isolation? Is isolation critical or is it something you, you talked a little bit about filtering and, and, and yeah. gating and things like that, but, it, but how important is it? It, it is important. It's um, it, if it ends up on tape or on disc, um, then it's important. And if you, if you've got interfering noise, say from traffic or worst case sort of human voices in the background, that presents a problem down the line for the, for the remixers because they have to mask it out. And quite often on, 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 a, on a final mix, they'll actually use music or um, masking noise, as it's called, to actually override the interference that's actually on the vocal recording. And that's true production sound as well. It's not just dubbing. It's not just ADR. There's a lot of production sound issues that have to be dealt with. Uh, worst case scenario, you do a re-recording of your voices, but that means getting the talent back in, and that's expensive. So you tend to avoid that if you can. I'm talking about original re- original yeah. recordings, you know, not dubbing. But the same rules apply to both, really. And uh, silent stages, as they're called, you know, the big, very, very expensive sound stages, you know, they're pretty quiet. So um, as long as everybody shuts up on set, you can get a good recording. Um, yeah, but the sound, start- the sound reply, the, the the rules apply. As I said before, it's it's what you hear, it's what goes down on tape at the end of the day, and the isolation itself. You have to do what you have to do to get that. Yeah, let, let's let's switch gears a little bit, and 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 how I think there's a sometimes a misconception that you know, microphones have gotten so good and filters have gotten so good. Um, and just like sort of manipulation of sound has gotten so good that you can take shortcuts with the recording environment. Is that, can There's you debunk? Old... Yeah. Can you debunk <laughs> that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can. <laughs> There's an old yeah. saying and it still holds true. Uh, if you think you can fix it in the mix, then you're not doing it properly. Um, I think it's a lot easier to get it right in the first place than try and fix it afterwards. With um, And even while you're recording, if you're having to use filters to get rid of background noise, you're going to get rid of the warmth to some extent that you're paying a lot for your microphone to get. Um, and there's a natural sound that comes out of a natural recording. The more you equalize things, the more you 
compress them or limit them or noise gate them or whatever. It, it can only get worse. You know, I don't think you make things sound better that way. I'm not talking about creative EQ. You know, if you want someone to sound warmer or, or, or notch out some sibilance or something like that, that's fair enough. That's different. That's dealing with the, the actual performance side of it. But if you're, if you're fiddling things just to make your environment work, then there's something wrong with your environment. Right. Um, and so that's uh, even with advancements, starting with a, I don't want to say pristine, but starting with a, a, a good quiet room and a good microphone and really capturing the, the sort of raw performance, that, that's still the gold standard. Well, I think so. I mean, people pay fortunes now. They pay $10,000 for an old Pultec compressor because it sounds warm. You know, there's, digital's a very unforgiving uh, medium. It's very, very correct, but it doesn't give you much leeway. And um, getting the sound right in the analog domain before you go digital really is the key to it for me. And that's why the microphone and the acoustics are so important and still are. Because if it's not right before it goes digital, then fixing it when it is digital is just that much harder. Uh, yeah. Digital's great and, for storage and, and transmission and streaming and so on. But as, as, as the initial medium you know you have to have this analog to digital process and the same when you're listening you've got to have speakers or whatever to hear it on and they're, they're still important and they're still analog even if you're going yeah. from a to d or d to a you you talked a little bit which i think is interesting about the whole chain the whole you know the whole kind of distribution chain um and, and obviously you you can't predict all of the permutations of how people will hear something right you know uh, and so so is it is it fair to say that what you can control is all of the up sort of upstream stuff right so if you if you basically can deliver a a master or a hero mix that's as good as it possibly can be that that's your highest probability of sort of downstream success is that is that a fair way to kind of think about it yeah yeah i think i think i'd, I'd agree with that the um i'll, I'll give you an example at, at shepperton studios in london they've got six rooms there that are dedicated more or less to quality controlling the adr stuff that comes in from around europe and beyond and, they, and they're they're leased to disney at the moment now i've i've listened in those rooms to a lot of recordings and you you just know almost immediately when you start listening to the playbacks, whether it's a good recording or not, it's, it's pretty obvious. Um, and it can be, the, there can be faults of all kinds. It can be the acoustic of, of the room, the microphone technique, the engineers riding of the uh, game controls and so on. Sometimes distortion creeps in. Um, these are all faults basically, and they shouldn't have existed in the first place. Um, and it just shows you that there's still still work to be done. There's always work to be done. And list, listening is the key. And if the engineers hear such things, they can do something about it. If they can't hear it because of the acoustic of the rooms, then, then stuff goes out that shouldn't go out. And, and no amount of playing with it is going to make it better. Right. I do believe that. Let's um, let's sort of, we're we're sort of getting to the end of the questions here, but I you know I know that I know the iDub is not um, it's not your main focus uh, in in your um, uh, relationship with with Iuno, but um, do you think that eventually 
that type of that uh, you kind of alluded to, well, there's something there, you know, it's, it's hard to know where it'll end up, but do you think that between building materials and, and all of the, 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 the total ecosystem that, um, that the iDub can get to something that's comparable to, to a studio, a small recording booth, or what do you, what do you think the long-term end game would be for, for a product like that? Okay. I think it has to work because there's the, the way the way that the entertainment industry and and film and video have merged with television and um, streaming has become so important to all of the main media companies. They have to find slicker ways to do things, and that means more ADR work. Um, it has to come down in terms of real estate cost and to some extent, the technical side, although the technical side isn't particularly expensive anymore, relatively speaking. If you think people used to spend $300,000 on an SSL console, you know, right? You know, the, everything's changed. Everything's changed. But um, iDub's part of that. We, we have to find a way to do it. And yes, we will. And it won't be the existing iDub, but it'll be something of that kind of size, maybe for one or two people. And it will work. Um, yeah, but it's going to weigh, it's going to weigh more, and it's going to cost more. Yeah, but, yeah, but not as much as a, not not as much as a really full fully equipped bricks and mortar studio. Yeah. So I, I always I always I, I always wondered if you know somebody could come up with a, a sort of scheme where there were these city center almost you know these check in check out type of models where you know the actor could just turn up and everything could be kind of run from a master regional center type thing and that you could just have these really slick kind of centers where people could almost let themselves in and uh, rather than have them in their homes just have these really low uh I don't, you know almost like self-service kind of come yeah. in and you know do the work i i've always thought that might be an interesting model yeah yeah there's a, a a friend of mine actually started a company called Yo Sushi. I don't know if there are any in the States, but um, it was kind of like a walk-in sushi bar, um, yeah. which was a very common thing in Japan. But it, at the time, it wasn't very common in London. He started that. And then he started another company called Yotel, which is like a, a walk-in place at airports where you could sleep off a, a missed flight or something. Yeah, And, and that, that's the kind of concept that you're talking about. And yes, it's entirely possible. Technically, it's entirely yeah. possible, yeah. And it, it may be the way to go, certainly, or in combination with traditional studios. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, just in general about about the concept of making a lighter weight recording studio, in, whether it's iDub or not. Does that mean that eventually the brick and mortar studios need to, you know, they go away or is it that they, there just becomes like a strata where some things go to those and some things maybe go to uh, this, you know, more disruptive, you know, business model, uh, what, what, you know, from a, I know that's kind of a business question, but I'm really asking yeah. it in the context of, of, a, of, you know, the tech, would, would the, would the acoustical technology allow that kind of disruption? To a point, to a point, um, when it comes to sound insulation or isolation, there are only two things that create it, basically. One is mass and the other one is stiffness. And if you do a lightweight construction, say in, in Jiprock or plasterboard, as we call it over here, 
um, then you're using basically the stiffness of the boards combined with, with some clever resonance control techniques, damping basically, to create something that doesn't cost as much as a traditional bricks and mortar type studio. What bricks and mortar give you are, is weight, mass basically. Right. Uh, sometimes mass is cheap. You know, in some parts of the world, it doesn't cost very much to throw up a brick wall, whereas to actually import specialist materials and put them on a timber frame or a steel frame or something like that would actually cost more than a traditional build. So it, it's about context. Right. Um, but basically things are getting... The, the other thing to bear in mind is, is air is the best material of all, because if you have two walls with an airspace between them, you get... Um, the good old decibel comes into its own. If you've got a wall that's, say, 20 dBs and another wall that's 20 dBs and you keep them far enough apart, then you get 40 dBs, which is 100 times better. 20 dBs right. is 100 times better. And that all that took was a bit of airspace. Yeah. It's so interesting. That's, that's the secret in a way. Keep things apart. And so, uh, Andy, we're, you know, we're sort of going to wrap up, but what, what, uh, what exactly... How long are you engaged with Iuno? Are you available for other work or, or is this a fairly exclusive thing? You know, what, uh, how, how long do you plan this, uh, this uh, affiliation with Iuno to, to go? Um, the, the initial concept was to do everything within a year. Um, I'm quite open to carry on beyond that, but I think we can achieve everything that we've just discussed now and get an end result within the year. Um, so I would say by the end of this year, my job will be done and there won't be anything left for me to do because everything we've talked about today is, is quite specific in what we're trying to achieve. And I think that can be done in the time scale of one year. So we've already started, so we're well, we're well on the way. After that, I shall go back into retirement. And if somebody else wants to give me a job, I'll consider it. <laughs> right. All right. Well, good. Well, um, uh, thank you very much, Andy Monroe, uh, acoustical consultant, and uh, and now under engagement with Iuno uh, SDI. So, uh, thank you so much, Andy. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, Chris. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to Telling Stories from the Clubhouse. Join us next week as we discuss more topics and tales about sharing stories with the world.